Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I know coaches, oh, he might not love football because he didn't play last year, all that crap. Like, do you feel like you are you get that blowback or what's the reaction been in, in general? I've got it. I've, I've got it from teams. Like I said, they just don't know. Yeah. You know, a yeah. guy can sit on his own and, and conjure up any idea he want to believe. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just my, my personal situation. You know, with, with my mother being gone out the house and me and my father living together for that last year in school, you know, he knows my, my heart and my dreams. And, um, you know, I live by myself at school and that's why my father was living by myself at school. So me being around all these guys, you know, and traveling. And at the time, you know, with the information we had at the time, it's like people tend to forget. Yes. Tend to forget that. Um, right. So it's like me being around all these guys at the time and not getting tested and going home and eating dinner with my father every day. Um, it was something that I couldn't ignore, you know, that I didn't have peace about the situation. Um, that's why I was the first one. You know, I didn't have to wait for anybody else. Um, it did, I didn't matter. It didn't matter if I was the only one, you know, um, I, I, I had to play it cautious. Um, that's just what I felt in my heart, and you know, I, and I and I don't want to look. And yeah. I don't, I don't want to look back and regret because you know, to this day, I'm COVID free. Um, my father was COVID free, and um, you know, I, I just got to thank God. Caleb Farley, Virginia Tech cornerback, who opted out in 2020. One of the best backgrounds I've seen over the course of the last year. All the hangers in the air, and Peter. There was someone in the bed who was moving, and 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 Sims and I talked about this yesterday. Whoever it was is trying to sleep. Go 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 find another room to do the 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 interview. Let that person sleep for crying out loud. But uh, you know, important points raised by Caleb Farley. People made a conscientious decision, whether at the pro level or at the college level, and I, I do feel like. To some degree, it was held against them by football people, and it's something that Caleb Farley has to deal with as he talks to NFL teams about why he sat out for a year. Does it mean he doesn't love football? And it's unfortunate 
that that question gets asked. Look, uh, Caleb Farley actually, not to blow my own horn, but he wrote a piece in my column announcing that he was opting out last year. And he was the first one. And I remember when I spoke to him about this at length, one of the things that he said to me, and this is what he wrote about, you know, he mentioned to Chris that, okay, his mom had died and he was uh, not every day, but uh, at least one or two days a week, he was seeing his father after being with his teammates and, you know, at, at Virginia Tech in, uh, you know, an enclosed space in off-season practices. And so he knew that a lot of his teammates were going home and doing whatever and then coming back to school, you know, during the week and practicing. He had no idea where they were. Not that, I mean, he's not blaming them, but he's saying, I cannot risk guys going home and then coming back here and us being 80 or 90 people in an indoor facility practicing. I mean, how is that safe in an era of COVID? And he just said, I, I can't do it. I can't subject my father to this. And that's why I think, in my opinion, I think anybody who opts out, you really have to look at the reason why they opted out. And you have to, I know I totally respect Caleb Farley for opting out for that reason. And look, all of these guys, they have their reasons. You need to look at each one individually. And one very important difference between college football and the NFL, the NFL promulgated very strict and clear rules and regulations regarding gathering of players, regarding weight room time, regarding everything that could in any way, shape, or form relate to the possible transmission of the virus. And the NFL did an excellent job in that regard. The college football programs had no such oversight. They were all left to their own devices. Some schools, very careful. Others, not. And I remember when the clusters of, of outbreaks were happening last year at the programs as they were trying to ramp up. Someone from the NFL told me, look, I can tell you what this is. This is weight room. This is too many people in the weight room, confined space, guys breathing hard, virus in the air. This is why it's happening. And yeah, if you're not comfortable that your coach is taking it seriously, and if you know the NCAA was asleep at the switch and really had no jurisdiction to do anything when it comes to implementing COVID protocols, the only prudent thing to do, especially since you don't have a paycheck riding on it, the only prudent yeah. thing to do is to say, as much as I hate to do this and as much as I want to play football, I can't in good conscience justify putting myself and my family at that risk, Peter. And that's why all you have to do with every guy, like, you know, maybe you want to know, you want to really know why Panay Sewell opted out, why Rashawn Slater opted out, you know, you, why any of these guys opted out. And so the best thing to do is to ask each one of them about it. And look, you might determine there might be somebody who's just blasé about football, is a little bit passive about the sport of football. Maybe that's why, who knows, maybe that's why so somebody opted out somewhere. But I think you're doing your team a disservice if you don't fully investigate that. The uh, issue also came up this week, Peter, because of comments that Ohio State coach Ryan Day made to you in defending 
Justin Fields against criticism that percolated last week via Dan Orlovsky of ESPN. Ryan Day made the comment, and look, I get what he was trying to do. He's trying to support Justin Fields and demonstrate how Fields spearheaded in many respects the effort to get a college football season at all in 2020 for the Big Ten. But there it is, the language that's highlighted in yellow. Where was everybody else? Where were the guys who were opting out then? You know, you don't love the game if you're doing something like that. I think Day crossed the line with those comments and and, and I think that what he did was set out loud what most college football coaches and probably many NFL coaches would believe, that if you do choose to step away, it is at least some small piece of evidence that you aren't as committed as you need to be to the sport of football. What did you think about what Day had to say? You know, at the time he said it, it you know, because I was really concerned with Justin Fields and I didn't really realize what he said until I went back and uh, read the transcript to our conversation. And I said, that's going to make some people sit up and take notice. Um, but what I thought of it was that, uh, that in my opinion, I think a lot of co- college coaches believe that. And that they believe that it says something about your devotion to football if you choose to opt out especially if it if your school has an environment of stringent testing and so and again look when some players opted out all right it's it, it, people opted out at different times and some players opted out at a time like when Caleb Farley opted out the testing at Virginia Tech was not stringent and i think it became more so you know, before the season started. And so I think those are the kind of questions why you have to ask each player why he opted out. But yeah, seeing those comments now, they really make you raise your eyebrow. When when I first realized what Ryan Day said and realized that he had crossed the line, I thought he may try after the fact to come up with some lame, flimsy excuse and I guess to his credit, he realized there was nothing else he could say. So the smart move was to say nothing at all. Otherwise, you you continue to fuel the story and you bring it to the attention of more people and you make yourself look bad by trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. But the reality is, because I started to climb up onto a soapbox and say, hey, if I had a kid who was getting ready to go to college, I wouldn't let him go to Ohio State, given what Ryan Day said. But you know what? He's he's the one who said what 95% or more college coaches would be thinking. They just don't say it out loud. But that's just the way football coaches are. That's the level of commitment they have, and they expect everyone else to have that commitment too, even if those guys aren't getting paid anything close to what the coaches are getting. I mean, one of his points, obviously, to me was, because I asked him about, you know, tell me about this petition thing that, that uh, Justin Fields did last year. And he's the one who started talking about how, you know, he tried to get all Big Ten uh, players to sign this petition uh, unsaid by him. You know, he, he didn't say this, but to force Kevin Warren, the commissioner of the Big Ten, to change his mind. Because Warren, you remember, had said, we're not playing football this year. And so Justin Fields clapped back at that. And his whole point was, because look, Part of the the whole Orlovsky theme was, you know, 
why isn't this guy more dedicated to football or whatever his quote was? Does he really want to be a great player? And, you know, Ryan Day's point was, do you, do you really question a guy's desire when, you know, he spent time in the offseason putting a petition together to try to get all the players in the Big Ten to come out and sign it and to basically protest to the league office, we want to play. And then, obviously, you watch the, the game against Clemson where he takes that, you know, incredible shot by the linebacker who got ejected for targeting in that game. And then he comes back, and after that point, uh, in the last 35 minutes of the game, throws four touchdowns and beats Trevor Lawrence. So it's hard for me to buy that line. And I think that is what uh, Ryan Day was trying to say. And as you say, Mike, he did go too far. Yeah, and look, he definitely and appropriately defended Justin Fields, and those are points that need to be made if anyone is going to traffic in the negativity that is always out there when there are teams that are hoping and wishing and praying that they can finagle a draft day slide so they can draft that guy about whom they are spreading the negativity. It's the ultimate Machiavellian approach to football, and maybe Jerry Jones trying to plot some ways to plant some negative information about Florida tight end Kyle Pitts, so he'll slide down the board. This one caught my attention. Chris Mortensen reporting that Jerry Jones is infatuated with Kyle Pitts and would obviously have to trade up at this point to get him. He's not going to be on the board at number 10. I, I Anytime something like this makes its way to our consciousness, I just wonder how and why and what the story is behind it. And it could just be another one of those situations where Jerry's locked onto a guy that no one else in the Cowboys brain trust wants and maybe the best way to derail it is to make it known so someone else takes Kyle Pitts so the Cowboys don't face that dilemma of loading up an offense where they already have more than enough weapons and their defense is woefully outmanned at this point and they need to use that 10th overall pick on not a pass catcher. You know what's interesting? I had a general manager yesterday. I was making a round of calls yesterday tell me this he said how interesting would it be if dallas traded up to six and gave their gave up their one next year and you know you're as you look at this you say well let's see miami's at number six miami already traded up you know from you know has made several trades three to twelve twelve to six imagine if they traded from six to ten now you know what that would mean for a one next year that would mean that they would have gone from 12 to 10 basically for free. You know, when you think about it, because they would have ended up getting exactly what they got, you know, from, from going, da- going down from 3 to 12. Uh, in, and when they gave that one back to Philadelphia, to get that one back to go to uh, uh, Dallas at 10, it would be hilarious that Miami is it, it, Miami has been falling out of trees and landing on its feet. They're like the cat. They're done. I think I think Chris Greer has done such a great job in maneuvering in the draft in the last couple of years. And so, look, I, I and I don't think I don't think Miami would do it. I think they got their hearts set on taking one of the great receivers or uh, Pitts at number six. But it'd just be interesting if that happened. Well, you take it a step farther. I don't know which first-round pick they gave to Philadelphia to go from 12 to 6, but if it's one of the picks they got from the 49ers, 
you gave that to the Eagles, you pick up the Cowboys' first-round pick instead. That's better than a first-round pick because chances are the Cowboys are going to be drafting a lot higher than the 49ers next year, although who knows. But as we know, not all first-round picks are made the same. There can be a gap of up to 31 picks between one and another by the time it all plays out. Uh, Kyle Pitts, clearly a great prospect, but from the standpoint of Cowboys' need, when you have Amari Cooper, when you have C.D. Lamb, you took C.D. Lamb last year when you had defensive needs. They've got Michael Gallup. They've got the weapons. They've got the financial investment in Dak Prescott. I don't think you justify your financial investment in Dak Prescott by ignoring your defensive needs and loading up even more on the offensive side of the ball so Prescott can have the kind of numbers that will make people say they didn't get fleeced by Prescott and his agent Todd France. I mean, look, you know, the Dallas Cowboys, Mike, when I look at the Cowboys right now, um, and, and you know, I, I had the benefit the year that they took Dak Prescott and Ezekiel Elliott of, you know, being at their facility and, and seeing a lot of what happened in their draft room. And the one thing that stood out is that Jerry Jones, as powerful a person as he is, had an opportunity, you know, five years ago, basically to go against the family. He had an opportunity to, uh, instead of giving a two and a four to move up into the first round to try to get Paxton Lynch, John Schneider wanted a two and a three. And Jerry was the only one who wanted to give it. The other guys in the room didn't, including his son, Stephen, the executive vice president. But Jerry Jones, instead of putting his foot down and saying, darn it, we're making this trade and we're taking Paxton Lynch. He didn't do it. He basically sat there, seethed a little bit, but he didn't do it. And he just sat there and they ended up not, making a trade into the lower part of the first round. They stuck with their second and third round picks. And uh, and so all I'm saying is just because Jerry gets a B in his bonnet that he wants Kyle Pitts, I would be very surprised if he had any support in that room to trade a future number one to trade up four or five spots uh, to get one player in this draft, particularly if it's not a quarterback. Kyle Pitts, though, safer than Johnny Manziel, the guy that Jerry Jones wanted so badly back in 2014. But with that defense and with where that team currently is right now, it's just impossible to justify. Unless you trade Amari Cooper for the ability to trade up, which I don't see anyone taking on a $20 million salary for Cooper this year. It just doesn't make sense. All right, it made plenty of sense for the Jets to trade Sam Darnold once they decided that Zach Wilson was their guy. Think back to 2018, Peter. It was that Saturday morning trade that came out of the blue. The Jets were at six. They gave the Colts three second-round picks to move from six to three. Now the Jets get far less than that overall investment, which ultimately is the sixth overall pick plus three second-round picks to get Sam Darnold. They give up Sam Darnold for a sixth-round pick this year, a second-round pick, and a fourth-round pick next year. What was your immediate assessment and reaction to the trade that sends Sam Darnold to the Panthers from the Jets' perspective as it relates to what they got? You know, my first reaction is that, um, you know, and, and again, this is probably this is a little bit rash, but is there any team in the NFL over the last 10 years 
that has changed coaches, general managers, and quarterbacks collectively more often than the New York Jets. Browns. I mean, the, Patri- the Patriots have to be chortling at the New York Jets. They really do. Because you know that Bill Belichick, every time somebody in his division changes the coach or general manager, he loves it because they're starting over and that means that the Jets or the Patriots are going to be in an advantage. So that was my first thought. My second thought was, you know, I remember, because obviously I live in I live in New York, I remember when Sam Darnold was picked. There's a parade down Broadway. This guy's going to be the guy. And we finally have, you know, the next Joe Namath. And, and the night he was drafted, and credit Steve Serby of the New York Post for this, Mike. The night he was drafted, Christopher Johnson... You know, then the the owner in place with the Jets said, I think people are going to look back 20 years from now and say that this is the moment the Jets shifted into a new gear and became a great team. And, you know, obviously, in those, in the last three seasons, Mike, team offense, New York Jets, 29, 32, and 32. I mean, it's... I, I have no idea what is going on inside the head of Zach Wilson right now. No idea. Or his family. But I'm sure they've got to be thinking as intelligent people. Man, I, I, I hope this Joe Douglas knows what he's doing. And oh, he's look, going to New York. Jets have a lot of the draft bar- choices right yeah. now. Yeah. Go ahead. He's going to New York. No, the go, bar is go. low. Robert Sala is the new head coach. I, I don't think there's reason for Zach Wilson to go run and hide at the prospect of being picked by these Jets. And from the Jets' perspective, you know, I say this about every team. If you're looking for a franchise quarterback and you either have one and you know it or you don't have one and you know it or you have a guy that you're willing to give him a chance to see if he becomes one. They gave Sam Darnold the three years to show something that would justify the conclusion that he's going to be a franchise quarterback. They've made the decision he's not. And now they're rolling the dice again. And, you know, even though you've changed your coach and your GM, the owner is still there, kind of. Woody Johnson's back now. But you know you need that franchise quarterback. And if Darnold didn't work out to your level of satisfaction and the fact that you're back in position with the second overall pick in the draft to take another quarterback shows that it didn't work out with Darnold, you you, you roll the dice again and you keep rolling the dice until you get that franchise quarterback. So I guess you I, look, do, Mike. But but the question the question is the question is Zach Wilson is going to be the seventh quarterback the Jets have taken in the top two rounds in the last either fifteen or sixteen years. So you know at some point, don't you say let's build a good team around our quarterback to give him the best chance possible to be good. And the Jets just haven't done that. And and look, part of that, you can go back to John Idzik. You can uh, go back to, uh, uh, you know, obviously you go back to Mike McCagnin. But, you, you know, they have not surrounded their quarterbacks traditionally with great players. And, you know, Mike Tannenbaum did some, you know, with Rex Ryan. And they had that really good run for a while with Mark Sanchez. But other than that, Tell me, what have the Jets done the last almost two decades? I mean, it's, it's been a debacle. It's been an absolute debacle, which is why, in my opinion, 
there better be uh, Joe, Joe Douglas right now, as much as you can say Zach Wilson's the most important guy, Joe Douglas is the most important guy in this organization for the next two years. He is. For the next they, 13 they did, months, the next two drafts, he's the guy. They did go to back-to-back AFC championship games, though. They were laying somewhat of a foundation before it all fell apart with Rex Ryan and Mike Tannenbaum, but I get your point. They need to build the team from the inside out, not the outside in. McCagnan was trying too hard to build from the outside in. Douglas is trying to build from the inside out. But if they believe in Zach Wilson as a potential generational talent, it gets back to what we talked about last hour. When you see that these quarterbacks, if they're great, can play for you for 15, 20 years, possibly, you grab them. It's the most important position on the field. And, you know, this is a great chicken in the egg question as it relates to great quarterbacks. How much help do you need around you to show that you're a franchise quarterback? I mean, at some point you become Archie Manning, but there have been guys who have shown us they are great quarterbacks without a whole lot of help around them just because they are special talents who can extend plays with their feet, who can throw the ball into a tight window, who can will a crappy receiver to get open and catch the ball through repetition and effort and leadership. I I, I don't know how much help it takes around a great quarterback to allow that quarterback to show us he's great. And I didn't see anything from Sam Darnold other than the clips that the Panthers are relentlessly pushing on social media. I didn't see enough to get me to say this guy's a franchise quarterback. I don't think anybody did, Mike. And that's so you ask yourself, I mean, look, I'm not I'm not saying that Sam Darnold is going to be great in the NFL. I'm not. But what I am saying is, if you look at the offensive line and the weapons that he has had since he's been there, it's got to be right at the bottom of the NFL. and, And I don't know what number it would be. But their offensive line has been awful. And their skill position players collectively have been awful. And so at some point, at some point, if you don't take better players, how can you expect your quarterback to be any good? You know, I haven't gone back and researched and compared the performances of Drew Brees in his years with the Chargers to Sam Darnold in his time with the Jets. My loose recollection is Brees was better with the Chargers than Darnold was with the Jets, but it's not unprecedented no question. Yeah. for for a guy for a guy who who, you know, clearly wasn't good enough in the eyes of his original team by virtue of the fact that the Chargers drafted well, Eli Manning technically, and then traded him for Phillip Rivers, but they gave up on Breeze after just a few seasons, kept him around, and then let him walk away, and then Breeze becomes one of the great quarterbacks of all time. So it's not unprecedented that a guy was regarded as not franchise quarterback material by his original team and goes somewhere else, and everything falls together, and lo and behold, you have a guy who's synonymous with quarterback greatness in the NFL. And and maybe in five years, we'll be saying, what the hell were the Jets thinking? They had Sam Darnold. I, I get that, Mike. But the Jets now have, in the span of 15 years, have taken six quarterbacks who they felt, at least uh, to some degree, had a good chance to be their quarterback in the long-term future. I mean, you can say, well, Christian Hackenberg was the 51st pick. Maybe, but you don't use the 51st pick in a draft on a player 
if you think that he's not going to be a starter for you at some point. And so the Jets have taken six or seven guys who, you know, they thought, okay, we're taking this guy. There's a good chance this guy is going to be our future. And they're 0 for 6. And that's the only reason why I look at Zach Wilson and part of me says, poor guy. And the other part says, Joe Douglas is the most important guy in this franchise over the next 13 months. Because these next two drafts are going to tell whether the Jets can get on the right track. The uh, the Jets have drafted plenty of quarterbacks. You are right. Christian Hackenberg, the second-round disaster in 2016. Bryce Petty in 2015. They had Geno Smith, second-round disaster in 2013. Good God. Mark Sanchez traded up to five to get him. Now he still has four road playoff wins, an NFL record. Kellen Clemens. They've been swinging and missing on quarterbacks for a while. And one guy, Peter, that they had temporarily, briefly in 2018, Teddy Bridgewater. They signed him as a free agent before they traded him to the Saints. Bridgewater's now the other side of this Carolina Panthers transaction with Darnold in Bridgewater Multiple teams interested in trading for him. He's got a $10 million fully guaranteed salary, another $7 million non-guaranteed on top of that. He's going to have to reduce his salary. And I could see, if you, if you could get him for $12 million in total salary, maybe get the Panthers to pay 2 or $3 million of it in a Ryan Tannehill type of a move, fifth-round draft pick, sixth-round draft pick, there are spots where Teddy Bridgewater could contribute in 2021 and I fully expect that he will be traded to someone either before the draft or after round one when a team like the Broncos that may be hoping that they can get a Justin Fields decides all right we'll go ahead and and do this deal to get Teddy Bridgewater away from the Carolina Panthers hey Mike points bet uh has two four six eight points bet in their nine teams is missing the one that I would pick of all the teams in the league, and that is Tampa Bay. And I'll tell you why. Before the Bucks signed Tom Brady last year, uh, Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich, you know, obviously they had to look at all the quarterbacks on the market. And I know that they had a lot of interest in Teddy Bridgewater and that they really liked Teddy Bridgewater. Now, could they in any way find a way to fit Teddy Bridgewater salary-wise on their team? I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know if they would do it, but if you ask me, just my gut feeling, knowing what the landscape was 14 months ago, I would bet Tampa. And And one of the reasons, if you're Teddy Bridgewater, you consider Tampa is that, okay, I sit behind Brady one or two years, and then I'm the guy. Uh, Because who knows who the coach is going to be of that team. My gut feeling is maybe two years down the road, three, whatever. Uh, It it could be Byron Leftwich. You don't know. But imagine if you were the guy to take over for Tom Brady. But again, all I'm saying is that the Bucs had a lot of interest in him before they signed Brady. So he's the team, that's the team that, that I think would have quite a bit of interest in him now. And, and there's a simple path to Tampa, and it consists of Teddy Bridgewater rejecting any request that he reduces $17 million salary 
Eventually, he would be cut, I'm convinced, by the Panthers. They owe him $10 million fully yes. guaranteed. He could go sign with the Bucks for $1.075 million and have the Panthers pay the $8.925 million balance for him to be the backup to Tom Brady with the division rival. I think that's why the Panthers are going to work very hard and possibly pay part of the salary to facilitate a trade of Teddy Bridgewater so they don't have to worry about him staying in the division and being a member of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. All right, let's take a break. A little which doesn't belong and why coming up next here on PFT Live. Around any corner, within every battle, and with the dawn of each new day, the threat of the unexpected, the unpredictable, and the unrelenting lies in wait. But Marines will always be there. They are the constant in the chaos. No matter the battlefield, Marines adapt to win, defeating every shifting threat, protecting our nation's future. The few, the proud, the Marines. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This weekend, it's WrestleMania, streaming live on Peacock, Saturday, April 10, Sunday, April 11, from Raymond James Stadium. And it's available on Peacock at no additional charge, no pay-per-view. Sign up to Peacock. I think you have to have one of the levels. I think it's the $5 level, and you get it. And look at this. From WrestleMania 2, the Rosemont Horizon, multiple NFL players involved in a battle royal there's the refrigerator hitting Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Pull up your pants, Fridge. Those pants were coming down throughout the match. He he gives Big John stud. Oh, oops, that one didn't work out. And out goes the Fridge. One of the last guys in that one. And there he is, seeming the white tank top. Russ Francis was one of the last guys who survived. And Peter, he went over the top rope and he hit the the edge of the the ring with his neck and and you could see he grabs his neck and I, I thought he was really hurt i mean even though if you haven't heard it's not you know unscripted guys still get hurt it's still very very physical and uh guys guys uh get injured all the time and uh, uh some some great old matches available on peacock all of the old wrestlemanias and the new one this weekend so peter i urge you to check it out I, I'm not sure I will, Mike. I've never been much of a wrestling buff since Bruno Sammartino hung up the leotard. <laughs> Bruno Sammartino was in that battle royal as well. Bruno was there. They had Harvey That's Martin, crazy. Ernie Holmes. Listen, Harvey Martin, Ernie Holmes, Refrigerator Perry, Jimbo Covert, Bill Fralick, 
was in that battle royal. They had a bunch of NFL guys. And you'll what never get the answer. What about Andre the Giant? Andre the Giant won it because he's a giant. Wow. The, the, and they, they have all sorts of celebrities of the day involved in the WrestleMania activities. The person working the bell for the Royal or Battle Royal at uh, WrestleMania 2 was the Where's the Beef lady from the Wendy's commercials, which were huge <laughs> back in the mid-1980s. All right, which doesn't belong and why? Let's begin with Refrigerator Perry from WrestleMania 2. Uh, Lawrence Taylor from WrestleMania 11. Rob Gronkowski, 33 and 36. Which doesn't belong and why? I mean, I would have to say the fridge. Um, because to me, if, if, if I want to get, if, if I want guys who are really going to be dangerous in the ring, for some reason, I, I, I don't view the fridge as being particularly dangerous in the ring. However, I would fear Rob Gronkowski. I say the fridge doesn't belong because for me, no one ever burned as bright beyond the sports world than William the Refrigerator Perry, the phenomenon that he was in 1985. I remember it vividly, right. and it's never been matched by anyone else. And one of the most unlikely of guys that would have become that flashpoint for so much notoriety as part of the 1985 Bears. So uh, the refrigerator, getting it done. Now, Mike, can I, can I tell you a very quick story? Can I tell you sure. a quick story about that? The day after the Super Bowl that the fridge scored the touchdown and Walter Payton didn't, that's when I knew that there was something strange inside the Chicago Bears because that was not a happy team. You know, they killed the Patriots in the Super Bowl, but it wasn't a happy team. And it, everybody's always said it's so amazing that, that they, they only won one Super Bowl. And yeah, it probably is. They're very talented. But I just think there was just too much internal crap on that Bears team and in that franchise. The defensive coordinator versus the head coach, you know, uh, Fridge getting to score, one of the greatest players of all time, not. It just, it felt really weird the day after that game. I love the Richard Dent line. We won a Super Bowl because of Mike Ditka and we won a Super Bowl because of Mike Ditka because, yeah, that's a team that they expected to win multiple championships. Yeah. All right, which doesn't belong and why? Tom Brady, quarterback whispers, Charlie Weiss, Josh McDaniels, Bruce Arians, which doesn't belong and why? Wow, that's a really good question. I would say uh, I think they all belong, but if anybody doesn't belong, I would say it's Bruce Arians because Tom Brady was who he was when he got to Tampa. And part of who he was was birthed by uh, Charlie Weiss and, uh, and Josh McDaniels. I'll say Weiss doesn't belong because, I mean, look, he never was an NFL head coach. Sometimes these are extremely superficial and simple, and I don't have any other ideas. So I'll just say Weiss because he wasn't an NFL head coach. The other two <laughs> became NFL head coaches. And Arians, obviously, a Super Bowl winner. Cam Newton, Jameis Winston, Andy Dalton, which doesn't belong and why. All three quarterbacks on one-year prove-it deals. Uh, I would say Cam Newton doesn't belong because while the other two, I could see the other two making a second year in in each of their places. I can't see Cam Newton being the quarterback of the Patriots in 2022. 
Yeah, I say Winston doesn't belong because he's the only one that I really don't know whether or not he's going to be the week one starter at this point. There's going to be a competition. He's going to have to earn it. I think Taysom Hill has the upper hand. Dalton, we can call the starter, barring something unforeseen in Chicago. Newton, the starter, barring something unforeseen in New England. All right, new general managers drafting in the top 10 three weeks from yesterday. Brad Holmes of the Lions, Scott Fitterer of the Panthers, George Payton of the Broncos, which doesn't belong and why? Well, I'd say right now that uh, George Payton doesn't belong because I think that George Payton is in the worst position of the three general managers in that the other two, I think, still could have the power to move around either up or down. Not that George Payton doesn't have that power, but the two guys ahead of him at four and eight have, are going to have more influence at the top of the draft than George Payton picking ninth. And Payton is the guy among the three who really doesn't have a quarterback solution. Even though the Lions could take one at seven, they've got Jared Goff. The Panthers now have Sam Darnold, although they, in theory, could take one at eight, and Fitterer hasn't ruled that out. Payton, it just feels like it's an open slate still for the Broncos, and it feels like there isn't satisfaction with Drew Locke, a second rounder from a couple of years ago. Let's take a break. Controversial ending to the Mets home opener provides the inspiration for today's PFT Live draft. We'll do it next. We'll be right back. Codright! The Mets' uh, controversial finish on Thursday in their home opener. The ball hits the elbow of the batter, whose name I don't know. Michael Conforto, they're telling me. Uh, he leaned into the pitch. It it resulted in uh, the winning run scoring and uh, totally bogus walk-off HBP to decide Mets-Marlins. Not only did Conforto not try to get out of the way, but he very slightly moved his elbow to get hit by a strike and the home plate umpire ignored it. That is some totally horse crap umping right there. Peter King <laughs> tweeted that yesterday. So, <laughs> um, all right. Uh, I don't so, like injustice. Not, not, that, not that that one outcome means a damn thing in a 162-game baseball season, but it inspired today's draft. Teams that still should be salty about a loss all time, any time in the NFL, something they should still be pissed off. Sorry, London, about even today. Peter, go ahead. Take the first one. Hello, London. Uh, Mike, I, I, I've got to take the Saints-Rams missed interference call in the NFC Championship game. How can you not call that? That's that's like the worst missed call. It, it may not in NFL history, but certainly in recent NFL history. Without any question, that's got to be number one. Every time I look at this play, I still think, how possibly is anybody looking at that and not calling it? I just, I and still the, just can't believe it. And the thing that still amazes me, and, and even though it's against the rules to do it, I, I'm amazed that, that Al Riveron didn't exercise his prerogative to yell at the referee, someone needs to drop a flag now, because if you don't, we're going to have a mess unlike any mess we've ever had. And they're still dealing with how to clean up that mess properly. Uh, more than two years later. I I'm going to go with the tuck rule game. Uh, uh, Ra Raiders fans still salty 
Raiders uh, employees, coaches, players, anyone still there who has any tie back to that team. And obviously John Gruden back again as the head coach, still upset about it. I'm told that at one point, and this lasted for a while, back when they actually used fax machines, some of the employees of the Raiders organization had a still frame of Tom Brady getting hit by Charles Woodson at the top of the cover page of every fax that they sent out. That's how upset the organization <laughs> still was about that call that robbed them of a berth in the AFC Championship in 2001. Hey, look, you talk to Amy Trask now. Obviously, he was Al Davis's right-hand person with the Raiders. You talk to Amy Trask, and it takes her about six words to get her blood boiling and the veins sticking out of her neck. And, you know, the thing about Raiders people, once you work for the Raiders, you learn one thing from Al Davis. Vengeance is ours. And, you know, because that's, Al always operated that way. So if you work for the Raiders, you always felt like everybody's out to get us. All right, and, and you know, one last thing about it. They ultimately changed that rule, but they waited like a decade to do it because they knew how obvious it would have been if they changed that rule in the aftermath. So I think it was like a 10- or 11-year statute of limitations that expired before they changed that rule. All right, Peter, round two, you're up. You know, my favorite play, just when I start thinking about plays officials screwed up, is the fail Mary game. And, you know, the Seattle-Green uh, Bay game, where in the end zone there is... Uh, you know, a mugging and a and a and a and a catch and all this and you know basically you just can't believe that that this is how this game really ended. You know, it's just hard to believe that they called a touchdown for it. It wasn't a touchdown, but they called it a touchdown. And that moment ended the lockout of the regular officials back in yeah. twenty twelve. That, that, that three weeks, it wasn't as big of a disaster as people in the league office feared it was going to be. But once that happened, by Thursday night, the regular officials were back on the job. And Yeah, because uh, that was that, a Monday night part. game. Yeah. And it also, you know, and it's impossible because you'd have to go back and play the rest of the season. But if you just go apples to apples and you take that loss and turn it into a win for the Packers, I think they would have had a bye a home game in the playoffs, you know, things may have gone differently for them in the 2012 postseason if that loss had been a win. Next one for me, I'll go the Des Cotted game from 2014, Cowboys and the Packers. I still think it was a catch. I think it was ruled, and I know it was ruled a catch on the field. I don't think there was enough, even under the prevailing definition of a catch at the time, to overturn the ruling on the field with clear and obvious evidence or indisputable visual evidence, the standard was at the time. He's got the ball. He's got multiple feet down. There's the, there's the ruling. The official comes over and says, that's a catch. I don't think there's nearly enough to say it wasn't, Peter. And I, if I'm a Cowboys fan, I'm still upset about it seven years later. Yeah, I don't blame you for being upset because look at every step of the way on this. And I totally understand by virtue of the rule, when his hand hit the ground, the ball moved and all that. But, man, he had the ball in his hand for a long time, Mike. That lunging, that's the football move that they always talked about that wasn't codified. The football move, the lunging of the ball, right. multiple steps and the lunging of the ball and the ruling on the field is it's a catch. And there's not indisputable visual evidence to overturn that ruling on the field. All right, round three, Peter, you're up. Mike, my favorite bad call of all time or miscall or no call of all time 
it has to be the snowplow game in New England in 1982. Obviously, you remember this. You know, it was a snowy day in Foxborough, Dolphins against the Patriots. And uh, a guy on work release from a local prison <laughs> was waved out on the field because he had, he had the snowplow, okay? And a guy was waved out on the field by Patriots coach Ron Meyer. And on the other sideline, Don Shula is screaming, you can't do that, you can't do that. But the snowplow comes on the field, clears a path, and John Smith, the kicker for the Patriots, kicks the field goal that wins the game, and the Dolphins lose. I remember Don Shuley, even late in his career, I'm, I'm serious, this is the loss he was most bitter at because he thought it was the most, he thought it was the loss that went against the spirit of every rule, that the home team cleared off a spot for its field goal kicker, uh, which should not have happened. And so... I don't know. It was, it's hilarious to watch. And it's hilarious also to watch and listen to Don Shula afterwards just, you know, kind of go bat crap over it. After all these years, it never really occurred to me, if you're going to do something shady and you need someone to actually do it, pick the guy who's already going back to prison anyway. Why does he care? Right, the guy on work release from prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's going back to jail anyway. Who cares if he does something he shouldn't have done? All right. Well, I think the control room knows what my final pick for this draft will be. Do I even need to say it? December twenty eighth, nineteen seventy five. I was ten years old. The Vikings had started that season ten and zero. It was their best team of the seventies. The game is over. Roger Staubach pumps left, throws right. Nate Wright thrown to the ground by Drew Pearson. Paul Krause knows it. Paul Krause is pointing to him. He interfered. The officials were blind. Pearson threw the ball out of the stadium. One of the officials got hit in the head with a whiskey bottle. And uh, there it is. Slow motion. I really don't need to see it again. But, Peter, look, I don't know anything about technique for defensive backs in 1975. But diving forward as the ball is coming in does not seem to be the acceptable way to defend. He was pushed. He was shoved. And, yes, I am still salty about that 45 years later. But, Mike, you saw the flag come in, okay, right after that play. What did the official rule on that flag? Did he That wasn't a flag. DPI? That wasn't a flag. Somebody threw an orange. It wasn't a flag. I've, I've seen that Zapruder film it many like times. It looked like a flag. I, thought, I remember oh, okay. when I was All a right. kid and I saw, it, I saw it flash across the bottom of the screen. I thought it was, too. I, I was distraught. And as I've said many times before, that was the low point of my childhood – and if that's the low point of anyone's childhood, it's not a bad childhood. If that's the worst thing that happened to hey, me Mike, from Mike, the age of did, one to 18, how did you pretty be, good. How did you become a Vikings fan? Well, I grew up in Steelers territory, and everybody in the town that I lived in was a Steelers fan, and the Steelers were good then. And, of course, you had to be a Steelers fan. And, Peter, you've known me long enough to know that the last thing I'm going to do is what I'm supposed to do. So I rebelled against being a Steelers fan. I would have had a much better childhood if I had been four Super Bowl championships. That would have been nice. But, you know, it's just there, there was just something about the purple. There was something about, you know, the Vikings were good at the time, so they were on TV. Uh, so, you know, I just kind of I, I, I like the color. I like the helmet. I like Fran Tarkin. I love Chuck Foreman. I love John Gilliam, if you remember him, number 42. And uh, that was that. And, uh, uh, you know, I caught the virus. And uh, there are many times I wish I hadn't. But uh, it was too late to change it by the time I was 10 years old. All right, let's take a break. 
There it is. Thanks. We're going to break with it. Well, good. There's the evidence. Pass interference, Drew Pearson. I'll be right back. There's the orange. That looks like a flag. Right That's a flag. <laughs> Patrick Holmes made a stir on Easter Sunday when he had a walking boot on in a family photo. There he is at Augusta. No walking boot on the left foot. Good news for Chiefs fans. Now, he posted some pictures that were clearly part of an an Adidas partnership. And I don't know that Adidas makes a walking boot, so he had to put the yellow shoe on, Peter. But look, he said he's going to be fine. Had that turf toe, had that surgery. He looks fine to me, and uh, Chiefs fans can exhale. The walking boot was off yesterday. Look, the one thing you knew about Mahomes is that time was on his side. If you do surgery on such a serious injury that you, you know, that he had to live with during the season, if you do it in February and know that really in 4 months you're supposed to be absolutely perfect back to normal, what are you going to miss particularly in an off season that is likely to be disrupted? Three days after the Super Bowl, we had that surgery, which tells you how bad it was. That's it for today's program. Have a great weekend. See you next week. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.